Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, September 26, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. Large Hadron Collider is the world's largest and highest energy particle accelerator, and it officially booted up earlier this month. But what exactly is a particle accelerator? Well, under the right conditions, physicists anticipate a mini-recreation of the conditions of the Big Bang. That's right, the creation of the universe. Frank Wilczek won the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics, and last week he came to speak at our Science in the City event series. Today, hear him talk on the LHC and some of the things he hopes that will advance physics into a new golden age. In the 20th century in fundamental physics, we had, I think it's fair to say in retrospect, three golden ages. We had a golden age around the year 1910 when the theory of relativity developed, another around 1925 with the development of quantum mechanics, and another around 1970 with the development of the core theory, what's usually called the standard model to make a truly great achievement seem boring. I think we're poised for a new golden age, the first one of the 21st century. We have beautiful ideas that have been ripening and maturing for the last 20 years. They've only come to look better and better as we study them closer and as the data supporting our core theory has solidified. Now it's time to consult nature and see if these ideas are really nature's ideas, if she thinks they're beautiful too. And finally, now we're going to have the tool at hand that will make it possible to dialogue with nature on this subject. It's called the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC. If you fly over Geneva and look down, you see this kind of scene. The, the Jura Mountains in the background, it's a kind of mystical. Uh, this is Lake Geneva, Geneva is over here. And then you see something really surprising. You see this gigantic red ring, <laughs> 27 kilometers or about 18 miles around. That's the LHC. In many ways, it's our civilization's answer to the pyramids of Egypt. It's on that kind of scale and involved that kind of effort. But it's much better, I'd argue, because it's a monument to curiosity rather than superstition and is based on cooperation rather than command. These are superconducting magnets, similar to the magnets that you would use in magnetic resonance imaging for medicine, but more powerful. They have to be kept at 3 degrees Kelvin, so they stay superconducting. These go around for 27 kilometers. They're machined to within microns so that they can guide protons around this ring. The protons have to go on precise paths. They will be moving within a part in a billion of the speed of light, the limiting velocity, so they have extraordinary energy. At a few points, the beams will cross and protons will collide. In those collisions, we reproduce conditions last seen within a microsecond of the Big Bang, that kind of energy and density, although not in the whole universe, just in a very, very small volume for a very short time. We want to understand what comes out of these little bangs. This is the kind of detector 
This is the scale of one of the detectors, the so-called Atlas detector. Uh, to see what it is on a human scale, to see that th this is a railing for people. It's 10 stories high, but it's also 10 stories in the other two directions. That's the civil engineering. The logistics of constructing it was mind-boggling. More important than the size, and more impressive than just the size, is the complexity and precision of what goes into it. This is precise, state-of-the-art, fast electronics, so that you can follow particle tracks. Uh, millions of a million collisions, roughly, per second occur. They all have to be sorted out. Out of these collisions, out of the fireballs, come many particles moving at close to the speed of light. You have to sort it all out and find the patterns. It's even more densely instrumented in the core. The information that we really want is highly encoded. To get them out requires enormous amounts of computer processing. There's a hierarchy called three levels of triggering. Uh, each level has something like this, where you uh, sort out the events one by one, throw away most of them because they're due to physics we understand. We're not interested in just confirming what we already know. So eventually, about one in a trillion events gets to the last level, and a human being looks at it and tries to figure out what it means. I hope I've given you a sense of the scale and the ingenuity of this effort. But that's just mechanics. What is it actually trying to do? Well, it's really, in a way, very concrete and mundane. It's very much in the tradition of Van Leeuwenhoek and his microscope, which first allowed people to see cells, or Rosalind Franklin's x-ray pictures of DNA. Those pictures used, respectively, light for Leeuwenhoek and x-rays for Rosalind Franklin. X-rays can look at smaller distances than light. We want to look at much, much smaller distances. And so it requires a different kind of instrument. In fact, it requires the kind of instrument that I described, this L8C. What it is is no more and no less than a microscope whose resolution is about a billion times better than x-rays. And because the interesting action there is very fast, it also has to be something that resolves very swift times. So it's an ultra-stroboscopic nanomicroscope. It takes pictures of empty space, because in modern physics, we learn that that's really where the action is. The primary object of our theories is a space-filling thing that doesn't have a standard name, so I made one up. I call it the grid, out of which the particles we observe that we're made out of emerge as kind of secondary epiphenomena, little ripples on the grid. The grid is full of spontaneous activity and potency, and it's the primary object of reality. It fills all space, and that's what we're studying. Empty space, that is what appears as empty space to us, has it all. Everything that can possibly exist, can possibly be created, gets created spontaneously in what's called virtual form, which means in a form where it only percolates into reality for a very short time and then fades back into empty space. So empty space has this foam, if you like, of virtual particles which come to be and pass away without getting very far, either in space and time. And that's the kind of structure we're trying to resolve. We can already do that using the reliable equations and experimental results of the core theory to a certain extent. Our eyes were not evolved or created. 
to resolve distances as small as 10 to the minus 14 centimeters or times as small as 10 to the minus 24 seconds. Having that kind of perception wouldn't be useful in avoiding predators or finding desirable mates, the kinds of things that uh, contribute to our fitness that we were evolved for. But now, using our noodles and analyzing the results of our equations and experiments, we can reconstruct what our eyes would see if they were capable of such resolution. And here it comes. This is the deep structure of reality. This is an actual numerical simulation of fluctuations in the energy in gluon fields. These are equations that have many consequences we can check and have checked, so there's no doubt that this is what empty space would look like if you could see with those kinds of fine resolutions. So here it comes, the deep structure of reality. Can we take down the lights a little bit? You see it's a lava lamp. <laughs> but this is an honest-to-goodness numerical calculation of fluctuations. It's simplified in a little way. It's smoothed out, so you make a nice movie out of it that's not too jagged. It looks continuous, even though there are only five frames. Of course, in reality, there are not just five frames. It doesn't repeat itself, and this is only a small volume. But every, you have to imagine that everywhere in space and time, all the time, every, everywhere and every when, this is happening. We want to see what's happening at even smaller distances and faster times. In the quantum world, to see something, you have to disturb it. There's an irreducible disturbance in a system if you want to observe its properties. This is related to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. If you want to know where a particle is, you have to have uncertainty in its momentum. So if you want to measure where a particle is, you have to kick it so it can have some uncertainty in momentum. In the deep quantum world, one level down, it's more drastic. To see something, you not only have to disturb it, but in many cases, you have to create it. So to see, for instance, the fluctuations in empty space due to a heavy particle, which are a very short duration and very localized, you have to supply enough energy to make that particle. That's why we don't see those gluon fluctuations all the time. We don't supply enough energy to actually create them and sort of bring them out of the equations and into life. And this is another way of looking at why the LHC is what it is, another aspect of it, a dual aspect in the sense of quantum duality. To produce a new particle that has a heavy mass m, you have to supply at least the energy that's the smallest energy that particle can have, because total energy is conserved. So if you have a particle of mass m at rest, its energy is mc squared, according to Einstein. That's the very least amount of energy you need to produce a particle of that type. That's why looking at short distances and producing new kinds of particles is called high-energy physics and involves these gigantic accelerators. Now I'd like to uh, present my vision for what I hope, expect, and have worked on, pioneered, championed for years will happen at this machine in terms of uh, advancing our fundamental understanding. In this core theory that I mentioned, 
also called the standard model, there are four different interactions. There's the strong force, the weak force, which act most importantly in the subnuclear world. And then there are the classic forces of electromagnetism and gravity. Let's leave gravity to the side for the moment. The other three forces obey equations that have a family resemblance. They're deeply similar in their mathematical structure. So we'd like to think that they're part of one happy family, one unified field theory. And when you try to implement that idea, a lot of things work. Equations which seemed lopsided and arbitrary within the core theory itself, from this new perspective, are lopsided in just the way they have to be to fill out the, the family tree, so to speak. But one thing doesn't work, or at least doesn't seem to work. That is that if we're going to regard all these different forces, these three different forces, as aspects of one more basic force, all on the same footing and all symmetrical with each other, then they should have the same power, that is, the same strength. But the strong force really is stronger than the other forces. And so if we plot strength of interaction going down, it's on the bottom. And the weak and electromagnetic have different strengths. But remember, remember the lava lamp. When we look at the properties of particles and how they interact, we don't see necessarily the most basic primeval qualities they have. We see them through this medium, which introduces kinds of distortions. It's as if we're fish looking through an ocean that distorts our vision of things. And so we have to correct for the effect of all these distortions. If we want to go down to short distances where the basics are and see if things get unified down there. And this is very much beyond our powers to do directly experimentally for very far. But we have the equations. In fact, they're these equations of asymptotic freedom that enable us to calculate the distortions and make corrections and see what, see what happens if we strip away the distortions and get back to the fields or the particles in themselves. And this is what we calculate. If you take the appearances over here and strip away the distortions, by golly, they do unify. They do seem to be different aspects of one underlying primeval reality. Unfortunately, or fortunately, there's a caveat, an asterisk here, which is that in this calculation, we have to correct for everything. These fluctuations, I said everything fluctuates in quantum theory. So we get fluctuations due to everything that exists. So we have to know that we have to know what exists. This calculation, the successful calculation, is assuming not only that the different interactions appear on the same footing, or that's really what we're testing, but also assuming that the different kinds of matter, matter and light, if you like, more specifically, fermions versus bosons, that is, electrons on the one hand and photons on the other, can be seen as part of one underlying symmetric reality. This is an idea called supersymmetry. It also involves changing, expanding the equations of physics, and necessarily involves, because we expand the equations, the existence of new phenomena, new kinds of particles. On the good side, that's just what we need when they appear as corrections to make the unification really work. On the potentially bad side, but also potentially very exciting side, those particles had better exist as real entities. So 
The unification only works if we expand our model of the world to include another unifying idea, supersymmetry. That brings in new fluctuations, new corrections, and new particles which must be produced at the LHC. But what about gravity? How does gravity fit into this picture, the fourth fundamental force? Well, at first sight, it looks absolutely absurd. Here, where we actually measure things at these relatively low energies, as a force between elementary particles, gravity is ridiculously weaker, feebler, than the other forces. You see, these guys differ by about a factor of 10 in their underlying strength. Gravity, if you compared them at atomic distances or macroscopic distances, they're both one over r squared forces, so it doesn't matter so much where you compare them at those large distances. You would find that gravity is weaker by a, a factor of 10 to the 40th, so 1 followed by 40 zeros. So not just one power of 10 that takes you from here to here, but another power of 10, so 10 times as big, and then 10 times as big as that, and 10 times as big as that, 40 times. So gravity would be way outside the known universe, looks ridiculously weaker, just absurdly weaker than the other forces. And that's probably the most difficult thing to understand about gravity. We've learned that the basics occur at a very much shorter distance, and we have to calculate what gravity is doing down there. Well, we've done the calculation, and here it comes. So from way outside the known universe, remember this is inverse coupling, so this very weak gravitational force is way up high. Uh, from way outside the known universe, here comes gravity at the last second, unifies too, more or less. So it's a very tantalizing picture that seems to be a grand synthesis of all the different interactions emerging not as something vague, but as a very precise numerical synthesis or unification of all the different couplings. So nature is singing for us a siren song, saying that we should bring things together. When we succumb to that temptation to unify things, we get rewarded. Things really do work that didn't have to work. Is she teaching us or teasing us? There's a trial by fire now. That machine, the LHC that I described, is going to be the trial by fire for these ideas. We wanted these particles in their virtual form to make the unification. They also have to exist when we supply enough energy in their real form, and that's what the LHC will be doing. So it's a trial by fire. Maybe they won't show up, and all this will go up in smoke. Or maybe we'll start to see emerging from these very complicated analyses and detectors evidence, not for a new particle. I mean, yes, it is a new particle, but that's not the point. It's evidence that we can achieve a much more unified, beautiful, and coherent uh, account of the basic laws of nature. It's an exciting time to be a physicist. I hope I've convinced you. But more than that, you don't have to be a physicist to appreciate these things. You can expand your mind by learning about them and appreciating the stakes, what's involved. It's really an exciting time for all thinking beings. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>
visit scienceandthecity.org and click Join NIAS. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have questions or comments about our show? We'd love your feedback. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Web Savvy? Check us out on Facebook too. See you next week.